the smaller nations of the world can be packed with major league wonders. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today's Travel with Rick Steves takes us to the impressive fjord country of Norway. Tour guide Lisa Rybloom explains how your sense of perspective can be fooled by all the cliffs and waterways. You almost can lose track of the scale until you spot a small cabin at the edge of the water, and then you realize that is so tiny, and this cliff face is so grand. And we get introduced to the tiny but tony nation of Monaco on the French Riviera, best known as the playground of the mega-rich. It used to be a matter of course that peoples of means would winter in the Riviera. But a country with more members in its orchestra than in its army has got to have some interesting people to meet. Yes, I think you would be surprised. They're very, very nice people and very down-to-earth. Monaco, Fjord Country, and listener tales of surprising travel faux pas. It's in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll look at touring ideas for visiting the famous fjords of Norway and check in with listeners with more stories of travel faux pas they unwittingly committed while overseas. Coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a look at one of the world's most famous tax shelters for the rich. The glitzy reputation of the sovereign city-state that we know of as the Principality of Monaco has been fed by its famous casinos, the Grand Prix Auto Race, and even James Bond movies. Monaco can be a fascinating bonus to your travels along the French Riviera. To introduce us to the sites are tour guides Hilbrun Weiss and Gael Pacheco Weiss, who incidentally were married there just one year ago. Hilbrun and Gael, welcome. Wonderful to be Thank here. Thank you. When you think of Monaco, you're thinking of a time, it's called a principality, is that right? Gail, can you just describe, first of all, is it Monaco or Monaco? It's Monaco. 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 <laughs> Monaco. And we hear Monte Carlo and Monaco. What is the difference? Okay, so Monaco is the name of the principality, but there are four different neighborhoods, actually, and Monte Carlo is one of them. It's the most famous one. It's That's the glitzy one with the casino and everything, Absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. So we have uh, La Condamine, which where we have the beaches. Uh, we have Monte Carlo, which is the one we just mentioned. There's the Fontvieille, which is the most, the more modern part. And that's reclaimed land mostly? Yes, absolutely. With lots of condominiums and, exactly. and a big uh, population density? Exactly, and shops and uh, etc. And then we have the Rock, which is where there's the, the palace. So, Hilburn, talk about the rock, because for a sightseer, the rock is kind of it. So, the rock, or as they call it, le rocher, that's really something extraordinary, because when you think of the Riviera and you think of the principality, what you're expecting to see is uh, little villages perched up on stone formations along the coast, and that's, that's what that rock is. Now, on both sides, you'll see this expanse of urbanity, very small, albeit, but you'll see these buildings, but that's the one that's the best preserved. It has the principal palace. And, and this whole principality is like less than one square mile. You could easily fit it inside Central Park in New York. Incredible. An in- independent country inside Central Park in New York. I mean, it's, it's a quirky place. There's more people in the orchestra than there are in its army. Absolutely. In fact, they have a treaty with France is that France will take care of its defense provided that uh, Monaco does not have any territorial claims on French territory. That sounds like a fair swap. It's a fair swap. Uh, the population is about, I think, 30,000 people, and most of them are transplants living there for tax relief. Gail, what is it that attracts people to Monaco these days? Mm, Residents in general are interested in, of course, taxes, the lack of taxes. Because Europe is so high. A lot of Americans complain about taxation, but if if we knew Europe's tax rates, we would be pretty thankful that we're paying American tax rates. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you're a, a wealthy person, Progressive taxation is the big deal in Europe. Uh, Absolutely. And we, we cap it here at about half what the European top rate is. So Europeans can be paying 80 or 90% of their marginal income in taxes. So if you're very wealthy, you have a huge incentive to uh, make Monaco your residence. Exactly. You need to have residency there, yes, to be a resident. But there are 10,000 people that are true. What do we call the people who live there? Monegasques. There are roughly 8,000 Monegasques. 8,000 Monegasques who are not there for tax purposes. They're there because that's where their family has been. That's their heritage. Exactly. They're from there. They derive uh, certain advantages. Any position that's in public administration, they have first, uh, oh. first choice for it. They have a preferential sort of employment policy. They also even have a preferential employment policy with private sector positions. But they're much more Jobs available. So if Bjorn Borg or a member of ABBA is moving in just to avoid taxes, uh, Joe Monaco is going to get the job first. 
If it's a public function, it is. What's the personality of the monogasques? Gal would be best suited to describe a monogasque. Some of her <laughs> neighbors were monogasques. Yes, I think you would be surprised. They're very, very nice people and very down to earth. They spend a uh, whole year long in Monaco. They're very attached to their principality and their prince in general. So there is local pride. There is. And there they, is. And they've got a local family. T- talk about the royal family that is like the rock star and president and king of, of the principality all together in one. Yes, there's a prince in the Monaco, Albert, and uh, his father died in 2005. So now he's the new prince and he got married a couple of years ago to Charlene, who is uh, from South Africa. Actually, uh, he's famous and people like him. So there's no um, big scandals. There's a pretty he's he's well thought of in, in the town. There've been a couple of scandals, but there's scandals in all families. <laughs> this and is the Grimaldi family. It is the Grimaldi family. Yes, absolutely. And he's Albert is the son of Grace Kelly, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and yes, there, he's doing a pretty good job. I think Grace Kelly really gives the cachet that we know of Monaco today. Grace Kelly was a turning point for Monaco. It went from being a quirky little place on the Mediterranean to mm. being this glitzy, fantastic, glamorous, glamorous place where people yeah. of riches and splendor were able to come and, uh, and spend and their when time. When you visit today, it feels like a toy kingdom in so many ways. Very well run, very wealthy, very, very comfortable. A lot of people say Monaco is big business and Prince Albert is the CEO. What do they mean when they say that? Prince Albert is the CEO of the architectural promoter. So the building promotion takes place under a company which uh, builds and destroys and rebuilds, taller every time. And so he has a lot of influence over the urban planning. Mm -hmm. And because the only income that the state can find is a little bit through the casino, but mostly sales tax... Every time an apartment gets sold or any time a building gets built, that's where the state earns its money. He is the CEO of a, um, of a large-scale construction company. It's travel with Rick Steves, and Hilburn Buys and Gail Pacheco Buys are telling us what you'll find packed into the tiny nation of Monaco on the French Riviera. Now, Gail, I've also heard the nickname that Monaco is a sunny place for shady people. What is meant by that? <laughs> a sunny place for shady people. I mean, is there a lot of um, secretive characters there that are hugely wealthy? I mean, you, you stand there and you look at these yachts. It's almost big news when a yacht comes in because people know, oh, that's so-and-so's yacht. And here's another, uh, there's that whole elite world that comes and goes uh, and, and they know the rhythm of life for the, the billionaires on this planet. Yes, it's true. When you go over there, tourists, when they go, they can go to the harbor or go to the Café de Paris and just stand there and look at all those people, all those cars as well, because you didn't mention the cars, boats, cars, and the beautiful people everywhere. That's a sport, actually. (laughs) Because you have the Grand Prix. Yes, absolutely. Formule 1. And, and this is an amazing thing because last time I was in Monaco, the, the main streets were, there was the barricades up and the protective things and so on, and they were ready for this incredible race that actually uses the city streets. Can you describe the Grand Prix and what it's like when that happens? Yeah, it happens in spring, which I think is a very good time of the year to go to the Riviera. There's so many things happening over there, uh, not mentioning the Festival de Cannes also. And uh, the Formula 1, uh, if you don't pay... That's really funny. If you don't pay, you don't see anything. Can There's you imagine? There's a barricade around the entire racetrack. You could try as hard as you wish. You could make a scaffolding, put, on, put yourself on top of a landing, uh, ladder and put yourself on stilts. It'll be impossible to see the race unless you've paid or, if you're very fortunate, you own an apartment with a view so over it. So they figured it out. They know all the viewpoints for the race oh, they, oh, they and do. they've got it down. So what do you do? You rent an apartment for a very high price to have a oh, view, okay. of course, from a balcony. But can you imagine? I think it's the only race that happens in a city in the world. Is that true? I don't know, actually. I've That's my understanding. Yeah. And it, do the cars crash and break in, and, and crash into buildings and banks and people's homes? Or oh, does absolutely. It, it, they actually happen. So. Well, well, they don't break a home because there are mm-hmm. these big concrete barricades everywhere. But uh, the race car drivers, it's a professional race. They race very seriously. And they're not taking any compromises simply mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that they're in the city. It's pedal to the metal. Pedal to the metal. How absolutely. Do you, how do you say pedal to the metal in French? I yeah. don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a saying like that? A fond la caisse. A fond la caisse. What does that mean? I feel like it means pedals in the metals. <laughs> yeah, pedals yeah. in the metals. Yes, so that's... absolutely. But uh, Rick, don't forget that sports are very, very important in Monaco, actually. Uh, Grace Kelly educated her three children, Albert mm-hmm. and uh, Stephanie and Caroline, uh, Caroline and uh, well-educated, and she asked them to do lots of sports. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week, we're diving into one interesting corner of our world with expert local guides. Today we're joined by Hilbrun and Gail Baez, and we're talking about one of Europe's little thrills, Monaco. Gail, you mentioned it was during the festival time. They have the Grand Prix in Monaco, and then they have the uh, festival in Cannes. We've got to remember the context. Monaco is just one of this little charm bracelet of beautiful attractions on the French Riviera. It may be an independent country, but it's connected very easily by train and bus and, and on the Corniche if you want to drive to the other great sites nearby. From Monaco, Hilburn, in one day, you could drive and quickly see a number of interesting places. What might you side trip to see? Oh, absolutely. I would certainly go to Italy because uh, Monaco is only 20 kilometers away from Italy. And just crossing first from Monaco into France, the uh, urban planning is completely different. And then driving past Menton into Italy, once again, the covered markets are different. The things they sell, the people. This is where Italy and France comes together. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, there was a plebiscite. Talk about how Monaco was was formed and, and its relationship to France and Italy. This entire region, the county of Nice, wasn't a part of France until very recently. It was a deal between Napoleon II and uh, Umberto of Italy somewhere in the, in the second half of the... When in, Italy was uniting, and the big question along the border is, are little regions, uh, principalities, small areas going to join the Italian Union, or are they going to stay with France, or maybe they're going to stay uh, uh, their own principality? I, I understand Monaco used to be a bigger country. Considerably bigger, yes. It must have been about thrice as large as it is now, at least. Mm-hmm. And and so in 1860, when they were unifying Italy, when they were doing these deals between France and um, Italy, a plebiscite was made, and the Monegasque population largely chose to stick with France. So a lot of two-thirds of the people chose to stay with France, not to be part of the principality. Yes. In so prin- that, that sort of made the principality a bit of a rump state. Was there some kind of a quid pro quo to, to keep them going? Yes, absolutely, because they would uh, lose a great deal of their productive territory, that is, where they could farm mm-hmm. and, and live off. The arrangement was that France said, well, if this is how it is, why don't you enjoy your from your privileged status and take advantage of that by opening up a casino, which could produce some revenue. So you got this little quirky principality with the freedom to have a, a casino yes. in the holiday destination zone for all of these British, Russian, French elites that were coming down to the French Riviera. It used to be a matter of course that peoples of means would winter in the Riviera, and that would be driving up and down these roads around, along the Cornice, and then stopping into Monaco and playing. Mm. Uh, that was the sort of the playground of the rich all. And to this winter day, long. tourists can step into that elegant casino in Monte Carlo and listen in to the sound. I love that clicking, rolling sound of the the graceful reshuffling of personal fortunes. Yes, they can, and one shouldn't hesitate to enter into the casino. It's not an exclusive place. Well, it is an exclusive place if you wish to play millions, but it's not mm-hmm. an exclusive place if you wish to enter and and view. And Gail, there's a room with. With smaller games also? There is an annex where you can go as a tourist and you can spend a few euros and uh, then buy an ice cream after that. But James Bond and Prince Albert and and his cohorts would be in a more private zone deeper into the casino, I would imagine. Closed rooms. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) If you have a tie, put it on when you go to the casino. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Hilburn and Gail Baez talking about Monaco. Hilburn and Gail, thanks so much for a fascinating insight into this worthwhile corner of Europe. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll check in with listeners at 877-333-7425 in just a bit with their always entertaining stories of faux pas they did in their foreign travels. Up next, we look at the magnificent scenery of Norway's fjord country, where nature sets the scene. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Maybe you just have to see it for yourself. Sure, there's plenty of scenic inlets by the sea, but the ones that'll take your breath away are the fjords of Norway. 
Carved by glaciers in Scandinavia's cool, rainy climate, the steep cliffs and long, narrow inlets that give fjord country its dramatic vistas are a destination all their own. Helping us to plan a trip to the west coast of Norway right now is Lisa Rybloom. Like me, she's an American with Norwegian ancestry, and Lisa joins us on Travel with Rick Steves to guide us deep into this impressive corner of the world. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, when you think about fjords and the mix of culture, talk about the mix of nature and Norwegian culture for a traveler going to the far west of Norway. Mm. One thing about the fjord country is that it's so wild. It's sparsely populated. And so you really see the majesty of Norway when you go there. And you are really dwarfed by the landscape. It makes you feel this vulnerability that people have out there to the land. And talk about dwarf, I remember being in a little tour boat, just a little boat with 20 people on it, you know, about a 20-foot boat or something like that, and the guide pulled us right up to a cliff, and you got this glassy water, and you look up, and this rock cliff shoots 3,000 feet straight up, and then the guide tells you, and it goes down 5,000 feet. That's an 8,000-foot sheer drop, a mile and a half and you're floating on a little boat there, you feel small. You do, and you almost can lose track of the scale until you spot a small cabin at the edge of the water, and then you realize that is so tiny, and this cliff face is so grand, and you just completely are in awe of how stunning the landscape is in the fjords. And then you turn around 180 degrees and you realize this is one narrow body of water. Yeah. It's 100 miles long, but it, yeah. you could almost swim across it. Yeah. And then you look in a little ledge high up on the cliff and there's another little tiny building yes. and it's a stranded farm. Yes, absolutely. And then uh, certain times of the year, all of those cliff faces are decorated with lacy waterfalls. Oh, I love so it. So the waterfalls, sometimes it's misty, and uh, magical. And you can understand how this culture has all of these fairy tales and myths and, and, and maidens and, yes. and creatures. Trolls. Trolls. You, you look at the rock formations and you think, that might have been a troll that accidentally spent a little too much time in the sunlight and was turned to stone. Now, your family and my family both came from Norway. And when you go to the fjord country, you can understand why in the old days, you know, 100, 150 years ago, it was like, let's get on a boat and get out of here because this is hard living. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, even a thousand years ago, people from there, they had expertise in boat building. They didn't have much arable land. What you going to do? Sharpen your spears and head south and you're going to terrorize Europe. That was the Vikings. That's right. We look at those bodies of water, though, as barriers to our transportation. But they looked at them as forms of communication. They were able to use all that water as ways to connect to other people I think sometimes we forget how connected they were to other people by way of that water. Mm -hmm. We look at it as a way that it separates us. And today with cars and, and trains and so on, this is quite a challenge. And Norway has spent a lot of money drilling tunnels and, and making bridges and so on. That's right. And there's a, a long-term project to lace together all the fjord communities. And there's a lot of towns that until just recently were completely isolated mm -hmm. that are now connected by roads. That's right. And Speaking of the a, roads, that's yeah. a wonderful way to enjoy the fjords is just to take a drive, just drive and drive and drive in the fjord but country. But if you're not on the ball, you can find yourself at what looks like an inconsequential little crossing and be stuck for hours there <laughs> waiting for a ferry. Waiting because, for a ferry. <laughs> because you forgot to make a reservation. And Norway's got a very good system where you simply give it a call, yes. you give your name, and then you can just roll right onto that boat. Yes. But if you're sloppy and you neglect that, you can hit it on the wrong time. That's right. And they have, a, luckily, a great website, Fjord One. And that's in Fjord Country, a good uh, website to know about, the Fjord One Ferries. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're taking you somewhere exciting, as we do every week for an hour here on this travel show. And we're joined today by Lisa Rybloom as we talk about the fjords of Norway. You know, Lisa, most people are going to do the fjords from Oslo. That'll be their springboard for that. And in Oslo, I would highly recommend going to the National Museum and look at the romantic paintings done by painters like Dahl, D-A-H-L. Right. And then you get a sense of not only the fjord country, but this romantic, nationalist love that the Norwegians have of their beautiful nature. That's really yes. where the soul of Norway yes, is. Yes, you're talking about the national romantic period in Norwegian painting that's on display at the National Gallery. And they did. They painted the fjords even bigger and grander than I've described them. They, they're like bionic mountains, and 
muscular rivers because they were bragging about and they were right, trying to show people what an incredible country they had. They had this burgeoning uh, national spirit that came around when they became independent from both Denmark and Sweden around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Mm -hmm. and so they were they were showing that in their art and, and showing and how incredible their landscape was. And you see the over-the-top nature and you also see over-the-top folk culture. Oh, yeah. Charming little cabins and people with all their... What's the name of the No, they're going out Norwegian? to work in the fields, but in their <laughs> incredible and ornate national costumes. I love it. The now, Bunad. The Bunad, that's right. If you want the, the real blitz tour of fjord country, the famous one is called Norway in a Nutshell. That's right. Can you describe exactly what Norway in a Nutshell is for the country? Yeah, well, it gives you a chance to get into the mountains of Norway and down into the fjords and also all the way over to Bergen, which is on the west coast. So you can get on the train in Oslo and uh, make your way over to the center of Norway, basically, to Flom. You take a... So you're taking this train up high into the mountains and then that's a, right. a, a cogwheel train right down to the little fjord town that's at right. Flom. That's right. And then you get on a ferry. So and it's coordinated. The train comes in Everything and the boat takes is off. Uh, minute to minute coordinated to connect to the next step of the mm -hmm. Norway in a nutshell route. You take a ferry and then uh, back onto a bus, which connects you back up to the train route in Voss and uh, on to Bergen. On into Bergen. That's just one day. Yeah. And you got the evening in Bergen, and you could sleep on the train back to Oslo, and That's was, right. you were gone for 24 hours. And incidentally, if you are in Bergen and you want to do this, you can do it as a day trip from Bergen, just make a little loop into the fjords and back to Bergen. And the second leg of that little boat ride we're talking about, narrow fjord, right? Mm -hmm. That, to me, is the most dramatic fjord scenery I think I have seen. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Rebecca's calling in from El Macero in California. Hi. <laughs> hey, Rebecca. Any comment on fjords? Uh, well, what was the, the little one that's the most dramatic that you just mentioned? It's called Nadarai Fjord. Would you spell that? N-A-E smashed together R-O-Y Fjord. I remember it because I, I always thought it just meant narrow fjord because it's so darn narrow, but that's not the Norwegian word. It's easy to think that would be the Norwegian no, word. No, it actually means something like close island fjord. Close island fjord. But that's all in Sonja fjord, and Sonja fjord is the grandest fjord. It's 120 miles long, it's one mile deep, and all along there you'll find some beautiful scenery. And also from these towns that Lisa and I are talking about, there are fast boats that go all the way to Bergen. So you could take the coastal uh, fast boat into Bergen, and, and then you've got some beautiful scenery all along the way. Yeah, the Sognefjord is the largest fjord in Norway, and there are many little finger fjords that come off mm -hmm. of it, and the Narrow Fjord is one of those. Balestrand is the resort there. I, I believe Kaiser Wilhelm, the German uh, emperor, actually went to Balestrand many, many years in a row. That was his favorite retreat in a lot of ways, and he understood what a good uh, fjord home base would be. Balestrand has the elegant old Victorian age hotels and so on. Okay, and uh, can we fly, we're going to be arriving in Copenhagen, can we fly from Copenhagen to Bergen and then you know, one, take the train and then Oslo back to Copenhagen? One great thing about traveling in Scandinavia is you've got wonderful and I think affordable uh, one-way flights all over the place. If, if there's two big cities, there are flights that connect them. You can go from Bergen to Copenhagen to Helsinki to Stockholm to Oslo if you like, or you can take it more scenically by train or boat. There's a great little airline these days called Norwegian Airlines, and you can book those flights. It's sort of the Southwest Airlines of uh, Scandinavia right now. They're really a quite good airline. Uh, you can look that up online, NorwegianAirlines.com, and they're a good way to get from major airports to the smaller cities like Bergen. Nice. That was my next question. <laughs> okay, Rebecca, thanks a lot, and have a good time. Thank you. And Luke's on the line from Brossard in Quebec. Luke, thanks for your call. Thank you. My 15-year-old son and I are planning on going to Iceland and then Norway this summer. We enjoy high adrenaline activities, so like uh, whitewater rafting, hand gliding, caving. Uh, what do you suggest we go to or we can try at uh, the fjord area? Good question. Lisa, any ideas for high adrenaline stuff? Wow, I might direct you toward the city of Voss, which is a little closer into the mountains, but it is a center for extreme sports-type activities. I know they do a lot of hang gliding out of Voss. In the wintertime, they do a lot of skiing there, but uh, I think that's a place where they, you might be able to find uh, excursions or, or those kinds of activities. I would be looking on the website for the city of Voss. 
And that's part of the Norway in a nutshell. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And also, it's on the main train line between Oslo and Bergen. I'm not much for high adrenaline sports, but the speedboat tour out of Arlandsfjord was really exciting. And it goes jet fast, and that gives you a, it takes you into some very scenic corners, and I'm sure your son would enjoy that. The other thing that pops right to my mind is uh, if you visit Lillehammer, which is the place where the 1994 Winter Olympics were held, and it's just north of Oslo, about 90 minutes by train, you can actually take a ride on their, it was the luge run, but Mm -hmm. now they Uh, have, in the summertime, a cart, basically, that you can ride down the luge run. Everybody, every kid at heart loves that. It's popular in Germany. It's called the Summer Rodelbahn. Yeah. It's a mountain luge ride, a slalom course down the mountain, taking the ski lift up and getting on a a little go-kart that has a concrete or a metal path that zigzags down the mountain. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we we just were saying there's, well, we don't know much about it, but there's all this fun when you think about it. And something else just came to mind. Okay. Hiking on the glacier, the Nygardsbreen. Yeah. Uh, Luke, when you go to uh, Sonjafjord, there are several towns that will have excursions that go up to the glacier, and then you um, strap on these little portable crampons, and you rope up, actually, and you have your guide, and you go hiking on one of the biggest uh, glaciers still open to visitors in Europe. Yeah, and now you've got me thinking just about something that Norwegians say. They say, ut potur aldrisur, out on a hike, never unhappy. So uh, hiking is a big activity. Um, they have a great system of uh, hut-to-hut hiking trails. So if you're there in the summertime, they hike uh, using these cabins that are sometimes staffed, sometimes unstaffed. But if you get in touch with the Norwegian Touring Foundation, they can give you keys to these cabins and you can make a week-long trip just hiking in the in the mountains. That would be very much doing like the locals do. Uh, mm. it, that's available for people to ski make skiing trips in the wintertime as well. And to accommodate hikers in the yeah. summer. And we a great absolutely chance for, love hiking. And it's a great chance for somebody like Luke and his son to uh, hike and, and hang out with local people who are enjoying nature in, in their homeland. Absolutely. Luke, good luck with your son in Norway. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. On Travel with Rick Steves today, we're joining with the people of Norway as they celebrate Constitution Day. It was May 17, 1814, when the nation of Norway was born. That's when its constitution was signed and Norway declared its independence from Sweden. We're exploring the heart of Norway's beautiful fjord country with tour guide Lisa Rybloom and your calls at 877-333-RICK. Janet's on the line in Walland, Tennessee. Janet, thanks for calling in. Hi, Rick. This is so exciting. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. Do you have a comment about the fjords with Lisa? Well, I'm very excited about... uh, We are taking a trip in June... Uh, we're doing a cruise, and we're cruising around Norway and through the fjords, and we're very excited about it. I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sure, of all these towns. <laughs> no problem. But I will do it, too. We are stopping in seven places. Um, the only one I had heard of, quite honestly, before was Bergen, but we are stopping in Stavanger. 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 Okay, thank you. And that's the oil town of Norway. It's near the oil fields, and uh, it's a small version of Bergen, kind of. Ah. It's a very cosmopolitan place, though, because of the oil industry. So there's Mm -hmm. likely to be good restaurants and Mm -hmm. lots to do. Fun. The next stop is Alsund. Alsund. Alsund, okay. It's a forgettable town on the south coast. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> there Forgettable. <we> go. <laughs> it's a cute Norwegian town in the South Coast. <laughs> a cute Norwegian town. Part of my question before I go through the rest of the list is we'll have full days and sometimes a little more, but full days at least in each of these places. And our favorite thing to do is to go out on our own. So we're wondering which of these we should do that. We okay. should just go out on our own and wander. And which ones maybe have something outside the town or something that we should arrange some sort of tour for. Well, you know, if you're taking a cruise around the coast of Norway, you're probably stopping at almost every major town, Stavanger, Alasund, uh, Geiringer. Most uh, cruise ships go to Geiringer, which is just a very scenic fjord, and it's very convenient for cruise ships. Tromso, that is one. <laughs> Tromso is the capital up in the north. With uh, It gets a much more northern feel to it, a more rugged, like Alaska or mm-hmm, something like mm-hmm. that. And Bergen, and then there's smaller towns, Molde, Honigsberg, and so on. But I don't write about them. I think you have them. hit every one of them. <laughs> I don't. I don't write them in my guidebook, and there's really not a lot to say about them. But they're just charming little towns surrounded by great scenery. I wouldn't get too hung up on trying to find great uh, guided tours of these places. 
I would just, uh, you know... Uh, Although the one thing I wouldn't miss in Tromsø is the Nidaros Cathedral. Okay, describe the, that. The, the cathedral there is uh, the cathedral where all of the Norwegian kings and queens are coronated. And uh, it's a wonderful medieval building. And um, it's uh, one of the great cathedrals of and Europe, I think. In Tromsø. In Tromsø. T-R-O-N-S-O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the main thing, Janet, is you're, you're just immersed. It's not a good word when you're taking a cruise, but you're surrounded by great Norwegian scenery. So, um, you know, bundle up and be on the deck and enjoy this uh, constant parade of just jaw-dropping natural beauty. Yeah, and I think take advantage of anything that's uh, happening locally. I, I've actually taken what sounds like almost that exact same trip, and I was in Olesund one day. There was a parade going on. I just enjoyed the local culture. Perfect. And just, uh, it was a memorable day because I, we were out in the streets with the locals enjoying their local event. That really is our favorite thing to do. Just take it easy, walk around you know, shop, meet people, you know, sit and have coffee, sit and have a glass of wine, and just kind of take it all in. So you'll it sounds like that's the thing to do in these places. That's right. You'll find two things, I think, across the board. The Norwegians you meet are going to be friendly, and they're going to speak English. That's right. Ah. All right. Have a good time, Janet. Thank you. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enthusing about the fjords of Norway with Lisa Rybloom. And Lisa, let's just close this conversation with something we've yet to talk about appreciating the food along with the ambience of fjord country. I love staying in a hotel in, on the Sonja Fjord called uh, the Valaker Hotel in Solvorn. And remember, in, in, this is the land of the midnight sun. And even if it's not a light in, at midnight, it is going to be uh, light and twilight at midnight. And, and you've got this long, lovely, romantic twilight. And you can step out after a nice dinner with your bowl of fresh berries and mm. sit on the porch and, and just watch the glassy still waters of the fjord knowing that it's a mile deep and look at those mountains that are a mile high all around it and enjoy a balmy twilight at 10 p.m. on a little village with these beautifully painted wooden huts all around you and be thankful that you're on the west coast of Norway. Yeah, and What's if you have for you that way? Well, I was just thinking if you have never tasted a Norwegian strawberry, you have never really lived because it is just a burst of juicy goodness in your mouth and there's no silence quite like the silence in a Norwegian fjord. And oh, my goodness. The silence of a Norwegian fjord with the burst of juicy goodness from a Norwegian <laughs> strawberry. I can hardly contain myself. It is a wonderful experience. And, and it's uh, not expensive, a strawberry. No, no. A f- strawberry from a farmer's stand. The long Norwegian days result in the most tasty strawberries. All this natural scenery and all this tasty goodness. I'm ready to go. Lisa Rybloom, thanks so much for sharing with us a special understanding of the fjords of Norway. It's been a pleasure. Next on Travel with Rick Steves, let's hear about your travels overseas and the funny little faux pas you discovered in that gap between cultures. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. One reason I travel is to laugh at myself when I'm making mistakes. And now we're going to talk about faux pas. What mistakes have we made and how have we learned from them? Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we got Lisa on the line from Everett in Washington. Lisa, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Hello. I'm calling about a a faux pas I made on my first trip abroad when I was 20. We went to the U.K., and um, I didn't have my hand gestures right, and I was excited to go buy a couple beers in a pub, so I gestured to, like, a peace sign, and the bartenders behind the bar uh, kept saying two or two to me, showing, you know, the peace sign and then kind of an L with her hand, and I didn't quite get it. And then I had the aha moment where I, I made the L with my hand and said two, and she put down a couple pints and uh, made the equivalent American rude hand gesture for what I was doing with the peace sign and, oh. and walked away. <laughs> so if, if you give a, a peace sign to a person at a bar asking for two, you're likely to get three. <laughs> you might get asked to leave. <laughs> or you might get asked to leave, yeah. So the peace sign is, is a rude thing. In England, yeah, the the rude the rude V gesture, you know, the uh, okay. the um, inverted so, uh, facing away from you. So that's kind of like giving somebody the finger. Exactly, I was I was giving her the bird. So you're given two fingers, which is one finger on this side of the Atlantic, and also on the continent, if you give a V sign, they'd assume it's 
three because you start by counting with your thumb. If you want, oh. if you want one of something, you hold up your thumb. If you hold up your first finger, they're going to assume you just didn't stick your thumb out enough, and they're going to think you want two of something. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah, so there's two. That's a double faux pas because I've made the mistake uh-huh. many times where I hold up my first finger and I get two of something because in Europe they'll start with their thumb. But, of course, mm-hmm. in some countries... If you go peace, you are uh, insulting somebody very much. You know, I was, uh, that reminds me when I was in Iran, I was all excited when we were filming, and I'd always come back to our van and try to explain to our driver, who didn't speak very good English, how good things were going, and I'd give him the thumbs-up sign. And finally, oh. finally he told me, uh, Mr. Rick, when you make thumbs-up like this, that's the same as uh, the middle finger in America. So <laughs> we have to be real careful with our hand gestures. Well, and I believe OK, the OK symbol is a bad one elsewhere, too. So and it changes, sure from, it changes from one country to the next. Yeah. So in one country, <laughs> so, it, it could be OK, in the next country, not. So it doesn't hurt to ask, does it? Not at all. <laughs> so did you finally get the beers that you wanted there in, in, in England? I did. I, I, got, I got the beers I wanted. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's what it's all about. So thanks, Lisa, for your call. Thank you. Have a good okay. one. Happy travels. Bye. Carolyn, Astoria, Oregon, has learned some lessons in Turkey. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Where were you in Turkey, and what did you learn? Well, actually, I was in Turkey for one year and three days, but who's counting, back in uh, June 66 to June 67. Uh-huh. So I, I was pretty young, too, and I learned a lot in that year. But the uh, faux pas that I jumped into my mind were um, when I was in Diyarbakir, which is down near the Syrian border. That's way in the, in the southeast of Turkey. Yeah. Exactly, yes. I was with a friend, and uh, we were in Antep, and we were visiting with the family of a Turkish friend, a man named Mehmet. And Mehmet was pretty savvy. He used to hang out with Peace Corps people, and, uh, of which I was not one. And he invited us to uh, come home with him. So we go to the home, and there's this great big courtyard and a small place where his mother did the cooking. Parents spoke only Turkish. My friend uh, spoke street Turkish. I had about five words to my name, but you can do a lot with the hands and faces. So Especially in Turkey. And especially in Turkey. And so we stayed with the family. We slept on mats on the floor. And I was informed after our visit of these two huge faux pas that uh, I had made. One was, as I walked inside the home, I stepped over Mehmet, who was lying on the floor, and just kept going. And no big deal. No one said anything. I didn't pick up any vibes. Later, I learned that uh, stepping over someone when they're lying on the floor uh, means that we dropped our sins on him. That's a dirty trick. And you can imagine how many sins I must have had being a woman, a Western woman uh, traveling around with a Western man, etc. So I dropped them on on the the son of the household. Very bad. And the second one was, and since those days, I've been in many countries where I'm sure you're familiar with squat toilets, and these holes in the ground were outside of the living area, sort of a little... um, Oh, a little cabinet almost. You went inside and did your thing. And I, being the good traveler that I was, always carried toilet paper with me. Big faux pas. It was considered extremely dirty to be using paper. Uh, One should always take water and rinse. And (laughs) I would never have occurred to me. You know, and, it, and, and to this yeah. day, when you look at even a modern construction in Turkey, there will be a little yeah. tiny faucet next to the toilet. Yeah. Well, that was the problem. In this house, which was relatively rustic, there was no faucet. There was no water at all. Or that might have given me a clue, but there was nothing. Uh, we were supposed to carry out a can of water huh. to do that, but no one handed that to me. No one informed me. Now, Mehmet spoke fluent English. Well, you were just screwing up right and left. I was such a mess. You know, you learn these faux pas. Uh, sometimes you learn them fast and you correct them. For example, when I was in uh, outside of uh, Kathmandu at the Tibetan Buddhist Monastery, I was very quickly informed that you do not sit with the soles of your feet facing someone. You just tuck your feet under you. Very simple. Uh, but who would know? So when you go to stretch your legs out, be sure you're not doing that. But in the case of my turkey experience, 
I didn't learn this until oh, probably a couple of weeks after we left Gaziantep, which is a fascinating place. Gaziantep is a fascinating place. Yeah. It's even to, to this day, it's an otherworldly place, as you said, right in the border of Syria and, and a capital in that area. Considering uh, the uh, little cultural mistakes you made, did your Turkish friends forgive you, or did they well, throw you out? Well, first of all, the parents never said anything or did anything. It wasn't until after we were out of their home that our friend told us. And in fact, he told us when he was missed at us about something else, he said, and when you were in my parents' house. And furthermore. Oh, my God. Oh so <laughs> I thought, you know, really, you need to well, you learn, learn a lot more. Well, I'm right. a little older now. so well, Thanks for hey. sharing. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye now. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address where you can share your travel tales and cross-cultural faux pas with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Margot in Redmond, Oregon emailed us, and she writes, uh, On my first visit to England, I noted that an American asked where the toilet was located. Surprised at her directness, I later asked where the restroom was. I was directed to what amounted to an upstairs sitting room, minus the necessaries. After that, I bravely asked for the toilet. You know, that's a good point. Uh, You need to just be direct in Europe, and uh, it's quite easy to say toilet, and you'll be directed to the restroom. If you say restroom, that's our little um, nice way to put it, but I think it works better overseas to, to be direct. Lisa's on the phone from Hartsdale, New York. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Rick. Tell us about a lesson you've learned that you'd like to share. Uh, I was traveling in Germany with my boyfriend, and I'd been, I've been to Germany many times before. I have family there, and I speak German. And uh, we were in Berlin, and it was actually my first time in Berlin, and it was, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful city. And uh, we were about to get on the, the subway, and uh, in Berlin, the subways run on the honor system. There are no... I'm in New York, and we're used to having turnstiles and gates and things like that. Well, there's no such thing in Berlin because presumably people are going to follow the rules and pay for their ticket before they get on the train, then get on the train with a ticket. And uh, the train was rushing into the station one morning, and we were trying to, as we were trying to get to a museum, my boyfriend persuaded me to, come on, let's just get on the train. We'll get the ticket at the next stop. And he's a very upstanding guy, and, and that's exactly what we would have done. And I'm too neurotic not to you know, get the, actually get the ticket. So I acquiesced as the train rushed in. And we jumped onto the train, and uh, imagine my horror about two, three minutes later as we're rushing between stops, and a gentleman starts coming through the car asking to see people's tickets. We, of course, didn't have them. My heart was beating very quickly, and I was very nervous. And he asked us for our tickets, which we did not have. And he very politely but firmly said, well, you'll be getting off the next stop with, a, with me then. Sure enough, we were let off the train, not not manhandled or anything, but still, it was clear what was happening. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> and on the platform in the next station, the gentleman, I have to say, he was very polite and kind and uh, was explaining in English, because my boyfriend does not speak German, and I, for whatever reason, my panic, I decided that the best thing for me to do would be, even though I speak German fluently, to pretend that I do not speak German and just sort of stand there silently. <laughs> And my boyfriend, to no avail, of course, tried to say we were going to buy it at the next stop. And the gentleman said, well, no, that's not the way it works here. And do you really have to buy your ticket? And so we're charging you, I think it was, maybe it was 50 euros, which ended up being almost $100. But he said, and that gives you the ticket to ride the trains for the whole day now. So, oh, so, we, so you actually got a day pass out of that. I never heard we about got that. Ex- Exactly. See, this is the silver lining that you always have to look at when you're traveling, right? Well, that's yes, great. Yes, we did get a day pass out of it. But, of course, as we're standing on the platform and he's speaking English, and my boyfriend was getting flustered and embarrassed. And the, the funniest thing of all was that at one point my boyfriend, because he was just flustered and not thinking clearly, said to the man, as, he's, as my boyfriend's stumbling through his words, um, do, do you speak English? And he, honestly, I mean, he didn't even realize the guy was speaking English to him. <laughs> so that became a joke afterwards. Do you speak English? <laughs> when and there were people circling us on this platform, you know, muttering about, oh, yeah, get these scoff laws. Right. And well, you fell into the sort of the riffraff that, that freeloads on the subway. And, and they people can kind of, um, dishonest travelers can kind of uh, factor in, well, there's a one in 50 chance I'm going to get caught, so I'll right. just ride this one. But, you know, all over Europe now, I've noticed there's uh, the honor system when it comes to public transit, and they've uh-huh. just decided it makes more sense rather than slowing everybody but down by having to show your ticket to some right. checker uh, and pay for that. They just have plainclothes people checking randomly on the train cars. 
And, you know, there's a Murphy's kind of law. You'll never get checked unless you go onto one of these subways or buses without a ticket. And then, of sure course. enough, the door closes, you've got nowhere to go, and you've got two conductors coming at you from and both ends. And you see ends. them coming at you. And, and I, I'm a, I was raised in Catholic schools. I'm not so Catholic anymore, but I'm very, you know, conscious, and I really would have... You know, I'm sure workers, you're so very like, honest. We really were going to buy the tickets <laughs> at the next stop, but I, it was so embarrassing. You know, they don't, they don't cut you any slack. Uh, there's no, no excuse for no, no, no. tourist or language barrier. I guess they shouldn't, but it, it was a moment where, you know, it, it could have brewed into like a nice little uh, couple's argument there. Well, kind of, there was tense moments between the two of us after the guy disappeared, and once I loosened up again, we, we really howled in laughter. Well, that's, it's, a nice, it's a nice memory. I hope you used your day pass after that. Of course we did. Actually, do you know what? On my refrigerator right now, I have what's known as the Quittung in German. I don't know if you speak German, but I have it hanging on the door. It's from uh, September 6, 2010, and it has the station, the U-Bahn number 7, the number 7, Meringenplatz. So, yeah, I, I have this as a souvenir, as a memory of... Well, there, that's, um, a, that's kind of a cheap, lifelong souvenir, then. There you go. It really you know, is. We, we should remind people also, there's two pitfalls here. You can walk right onto the trains with no turnstiles in a lot of cities. That doesn't mean it's free. That doesn't mean you won't be checked. And you can assume if you're a tourist going onto those trains without a ticket, you're going you're gonna to run out of your, your luck and you're going to get You'll checked. You'll run out of luck. And it's right. expensive. Will it's up. usually around 100 bucks, you know, in euros. And then um, the other thing is a lot of times tourists will buy a ticket and not realize you got to stamp it before you get on a train or a subway or a tram. Oh, that's right. You have to validate it, sure, yeah. in those little stamping machines. And if you're riding around with a ticket that's not validated, it's just um, reasonable for the conductor or the ticket checker to expect that you were trying to freeload on the system, and they're going to nail you. Now, if you do get yourself on a car and were unable to stamp it for some reason, you need to, on a train anyways, you got to take the initiative and find the conductor really quick, and then he will uh, write on it that you're okay and he may or may not give you a little penalty. But if they find you, uh, you know, it's like you're trying to steal from the system, and they're going to nail you. Exactly. And it, like you said, the moment I saw them come into the car, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> there's your Berlin memory. Hey, Lisa, thanks so much for uh, sharing your hard luck story. Thank you, Rick. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. We're checking in with listeners like you at 877-333-7425 with tales of lessons learned and fun memories that linger from your foreign travels. You can also post your own tales of travel faux pas on our message board. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Les in Miami, Florida writes, At a fine restaurant in Siena, we ordered the Steak Florentine for two. It's the best steak we ever ate, but it was much too big for my wife and me. My wife asked for a doggy bag to take the rest home. The waiter gave us a very funny look and took it into the kitchen where we heard laughter, but then he brought it back nicely wrapped in foil. We only learned later that the doggy bag concept doesn't really apply in Europe, so I guess we were silly, low-class Americans to them. However, the leftover steak was delicious. And that's very true all over Europe. Uh, Americans are very accustomed to taking, you know, asking it in a doggy bag or put this in a box and I'll take it home. You just don't do that in Europe. I think the trick in Europe is you want to order less. Portions can be big. And don't hesitate to order one portion for two people if you don't want to waste food. But uh, if you can't eat it there, don't plan on carrying it out. And Elizabeth in Sacramento uh, has been running around in Mexico City. I have, and it's a true story. <laughs> well, um, I was going to be the chaperone for um, two teenagers that are about 14, two girls. And I said, let's get out of the house. Let's go to Chapultepec Park you know, and go rowing or something like that, just sightseeing. It started out mild-mannered, but uh, what happened is um, we got in front of where you actually rent the boats at Chapultepec Lake, and there was like an animated figure. Um, I guess there was a couple, but I mostly just kind of concentrated. There was one, Chicken Little, and what happened all of a sudden, I don't know, somehow we got a, I got a picture taken with him. I didn't want a picture taken, and I do speak Spanish really well. And um, I thought, well, I'm not going to concentrate on this. I really don't want to buy it. And he was saying, okay, now, dinero, now, money, money. And I go, no, nah, let me go row first, and then we'll talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, Elizabeth, let's first explain to people, uh, describe Chapultepec yeah. Park. Because, I mean, Mexico City is vast. Yeah. It's, it's like 15, 20 million people or something Jeez, like that. Right. And then yeah. what's Chapultepec? Chapultepec's kind of a green oasis in the middle of... Uh, smoggy, busy Mexico. 
And this is where all the families can take their kids, and there's all sorts of amusements going on and fun things to buy and eat and amusements. Oh, yeah. Everything kind of goes down there. There's also a beautiful castle on a hill overlooking this lake where you can rent boats. And mariachis, there would be mariachis. The mariachis will come and play for you. And if you're a tourist, they just see dollar signs in a lot of cases. I think they do. (laughs) So you got Chicken Little all over you, and you you pose with Chicken Little, and they're going to want some money. Well, um, (laughs) he posed with me. Let's put it like that. But we rode, we had a ball in in the lake, and then we came out, and I thought, there's so many people. He won't recognize me. I'm not really tall. I kind of blend. And all of a sudden, he looked over at me, and he goes, you and I go, and then all of a sudden I took off running. But as I was running, I was telling the girls, "It's okay, I got it under control. It's okay." So you and the two girls <laughs> running through the park in Mexico City, being chased by yeah, Chicken Little. I'm running. Chicken Little's running after me. But the nice thing on my side is he had the big giant bird feet. He <laughs> couldn't run that fast. And then the two girls are running after him. But it was wonderful. At the end of all of this, when we're you know having a little meal. We said, wasn't that amazing? We lived through that. <laughs> the girls especially will remember that little episode for the rest it. of their lives. So one thing important is hoard small change because you get in a corner and a lot of times you have to give a little money and if you only have a big bill, which is often the case, good luck getting change back. True. All right. Hey, well, uh, it's it sounds nice like to you... have an aerobic workout in Chapultepec Park. <laughs> with, a, with a chicken little chasing you. It sounds like you enjoy Mexico City. You know, a lot of Americans don't realize how easy it is to zip down to Mexico City, and I find it's a beautiful little escape in the middle of the winter. Yeah, once you get to know, what makes me feel nice in Mexico City is all the different neighborhoods, like Coyacan, Roma. Once I got that down, then I'm like, each neighborhood has a personality. Ah, Yeah. So, Elizabeth, (laughs) after being chased by Chicken Little, what did you have for dinner that night? We had tacos. <laughs> ah, very nice. Hey, well, thanks for your report, and we'll all be very careful next time we're in Chapultepec Park to mm, look out for okay. Chicken Little. Thanks. Okay, keep up the good work, Rick. You too. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website team includes Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air Travel with Rick Steves. Look for our affiliate listings with Listen Live links in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Oslo to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit our tour pages at ricksteves.com.